Alright, so this is another one in our episode, and I have to confess, we didn't really start talking about the future until the end, because we were just having so much fun. I hope that you can uh, hear how much fun we're having. I certainly curse a few more times in this one. Um, I don't know. I ended up pretty relaxed in this one. Um, so this one's with Dr. Betsy Sneller, um, and she is approaching social justice in linguistics in a really unique way and I hope that you listen to what she has to say and I hope that you think that whatever your discipline is whether it's language related or not you can uh, work towards social justice even if that's not the explicit direction of your research right all right hope you enjoy All right, folks, welcome back to Understand. Nope, that's not the word. It's not what the word is. Let's start that again. All right, all right, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I'm David D. Gerald, and I'm here today with Dr. Betsy Steller, not Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> we are here to talk about uh, another series of things related to language and linguistic analysis and justice. But before I get into all of that, I'm going to have her introduce herself and some of the many, many things she's done because if the cliche is publish or perish. She is never going to perish. <laughs> so, Dr. hi, hi everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Dr. Betsy Sneller. Um, I got my PhD from Penn in 2018, um, studying sociolinguistics with Bill Lebov, um, who I think is his influence in the role of social justice and linguistic analysis has been fundamental since before I realized I wanted to be a linguist actually. Um, and I, I'm going to try to think of the least awkward way to say this. Um, I, yeah, so I, I, I work on language variation and change, particularly on sound change, um, which is a topic that might not sound like it necessarily has to do with social justice. Um, but you can't study language change without studying how actual people use language. And as soon as you're dealing with actual people, then systems of oppression and systems of justice and injustice come into play. Um, and you can't, I mean, it is the contention of sociolinguistics that you cannot understand language without understanding the social injustice that exists in the world because that affects language and um, is impacted by language. Um, it is my hope. I'm hoping that our conversation can go in this kind of a direction. I would love to hear your thoughts and talk some more about how that idea that I just pitched, that you cannot understand language without understanding social inequality and social justice. That's well, the message that I want to get to everybody who takes a Ling one class. So I believe it myself, right? Um, and I think I sort of, um, I sort of believed it to some extent when I started, at least started my master's program just 10 years ago now. Um, but I don't know that I believe, I didn't like, I didn't not believe it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's sort of a, where I, because of, my own background and history and so forth, I, if someone had said that phrase to me, I never would have said I disagree, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I don't know that I would have come up with, aside from the terminology, which I wouldn't have known, I don't know that I would have come up with the phrase until I was introduced to certain things myself. So I think that that sort of middle ground where there are people who were like me, where they wouldn't have disagreed, but they wouldn't have been able to be intentional about it is yeah. a, a big part of the, the issue because the, the, you know, the people who are like aggressively ignoring it, like they're a problem, but it's all those people who they really could come along with us, but aren't doing so because whether it's their program or their life or whatever is not giving them the, or greasing these kids or whatever phrase you want to use. I know that the first one class I took was not taught by someone who's interested in that. And it actually turned me off a bit for a long time. Yeah. My junior, sophomore, no, some undergrad year, um, sophomore year, um, I took a linguistics class and I had no particular interest in becoming a teacher at that point. Um, that's not why I took it. I was an English major and I thought it would be interesting and it was a requirement or something. But, um, so I took it and it was basic linguistics class, a lot of sentence trees, you know, that sort of thing. And it could have been really interesting, but he was like a cliche of a professor, professor. like he talked to the ground and he mumbled, but you know, like that cliche. Now that can work, <laughs> but it, because he was like not doing, he wasn't that interested in teaching people who are new to the field, let's put it that way. And so, okay, he's boring, fine. But when the midterm came around, I did very poorly and many of us did. And then he just blamed all of us for not working hard enough. <laughs> so, so I was like, what I'm pretty sure that's not how teaching works. Who, who is this man? Um, but he was, you know, how it works. He was like in charge of the department. So what are you going to do? Right. You know, mm -hmm. we actually, I went and I spoke to someone about it and they were like, yeah, well, he kind of built the department. So what are you going to do? So that's the thing that happens is if the wrong person or the wrong people are in charge, you never, the department is never going to change and there's no leave to die or something. Um, so, really, um, sorry, you're in the middle of a second. No, I don't have anything else. Well, I'm just thinking about the idea of like somebody in a position of power in linguistics who's not interested in the social aspect of language or social structures at all, um, which is a kind of um, uh, what's the and this is a topic that got, was talked about at the LSA a couple of years ago about the sort of domination of the fields of, um, well, basically theoretical syntax, um, but theoretical linguistics in general, that it get, and, and theoretical linguistics as thought of as separable from other types of analyses, um, which is, side note, weird anyway to think about like social linguistics as not being theoretical or educational linguistics as not being theoretical like there there are theories there <laughs> like you're trying to tell me that they're not theoretical and abstract like um but th within the field of linguistics there's a at least in the states there's a really strong like intellectual domination of theoretical syntax theoretical phonology semantics um which enables people to believe that the social aspects are not important. 
And like, listen, if you, if you are a theoretical syntactician, that's fine. I'm not saying that everybody has to study the same thing, but there is this weird way in which these sort of like powerful fields or powerful subfields get to not take other subfields seriously. Which I, I, I don't know if that was what was happening in the class that you're. No, I mean, I mean, I, 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 I didn't have the language at the time to say that that's what he was doing, right? So in retrospect, fifteen years later, probably I can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, like it seems that that is what was going on, and that's where he was based. I don't know because he didn't say as much to. Yeah. Us. And but, this is—I want to be clear. I—I'm not like trying to throw all syntacticians under the bus. I think there are many people who do this work quite well. Right. Well, I mean, but I mean, who who doesn't think about this? People who don't have to think about it, right? Um, and then yes, there is a reason that minoritized scholars are much more likely to be in sociolinguistics rather than um, so-called theoretical fields. I, I like I have a friend who's um, Black American classics scholar, mm -hmm. and uh, like he, of course, has to spend all of his time arguing for <laughs> for you know uh, anti-oppressive changes to the field, uh, and like it's not all he does. I said all this time. It's not the only thing he does. It's obviously just doing regular work, but it's just like, it has to, it's just like, no one's going to do it if he's not doing it. So um, sometimes I think when I was younger, before I really got into this stuff, there was, you know, most of my identity, I was sort of at a, a bit of a crossroads for a long time because I didn't want to be fenced in by you know, okay, my experiences were this and this, and I didn't even understand all of them at that time. But then some time passed, and I realized, like, I can't really get away from it. <laughs> like, I can't just ignore my identity um, or, and suppress it, because ultimately, it, it's still based upon how the world sees us. And if we try to pretend that the world doesn't see us a certain way, we're just going to end up lying to ourselves. So it's best to, instead of ignoring it, say, all right, this is my identity. What can I do with it that would benefit the work, you know, whatever the work is that somebody's doing. Um, I think that, especially like anything that I think of doing in the future, and I don't just mean as a job, but just generally as far as things I think about with language, like I can't even think about separating the people from the language, you know, like what, what is language without people? what is it what, what literally what is like language is about making meaning right i mean it's about a lot of things but i'm just saying it's about making meaning but it's making meaning for people <laughs> like for who like for what if, if there's if there's no meaning i mean sorry there's no people there's no meaning so language has no power without people is what i'm saying so i don't i don't understand but what the question i'm going to ask you is like how do we and maybe you can think about some of the research you've done um, and some of the stuff you've written about. Um, but how can we make people, like some, some of the work that you've done, I mean, you can even pick some of the articles specifically, uh, you've looked at things that if I didn't know what you had worked on in your bent, if I just read the title of something, 
um, I wouldn't think that that was connected to trying to understand, you know, power dynamics necessarily, right? Like looking at, you know, the way that uh, two different subgroups, subgroups of ethnicities in Philadelphia neighborhood, you know, on different sides of a park, right? We're talking and how that relates to expressions of masculinity. Like, like I, I, I wouldn't even think to go there, you know, if I wasn't already looking for that sort of thing and also wasn't like looking at Grove Church or talk to you, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> but like, so how do you get to, I want to ask a big question and here is the path I'm going to take to explore. Like, how, what is some of the, the, the paths you've taken into understanding some of these big questions with, with um, the particular projects you've worked on? That's like a nine minute question. Oh, well. No, I mean, so this is kind of where I go back to this idea that it's like inextricable. It has been, my experience with research is like, I have a question and I follow it down the path. And sometimes that path takes two weeks and I realize it's a dead end and not actually interesting. And then I switch tags. And sometimes it's a path that explodes into five different big questions and becomes my dissertation, right? But every single time that I've landed on a question, so for instance, this, the field work that I was doing in South Philly, um, that field work started, well, that started a little bit more directly interested in social justice. I, I came to do my grad work at Penn specifically because um, I knew that Bill was interested in um, using scholarship to support social justice. And that was important to me. Um, so I had this vague idea that I was going to study African-American English as a white girl in Philly um, and showed up to a neighborhood with a group of um, linguists to talk to people, to do sociolinguistic fieldwork. Um, and it was in a black community and people in the neighborhood asked us to leave. They were, why are you here? Um, which I think was a very important experience for me. And I, and I mean, embarrassed that I, it didn't even cross my mind that like, what am I, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm a middle-class white girl just showing up in the middle of a neighborhood, expecting people to be my research subjects. Like it's pretty I'm, messed I've been up. this in my head, by the way, which is confusing me, but yeah. Sorry. So I have an image of this happening like in my head. I'm sort of amused by the image. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, yes, you can imagine. <laughs> um, and I will say, like, people were, they weren't dicks to us. They were just like, can you not be here? Why are you here? Which, so reasonable. Um, we, uh, there was one, and this was not, like, across the board. I was, we were talking to people in the neighborhood and just generally asking, like, how has your neighborhood changed from when you were a kid, when you were coming up? Like, was it different? And I found that when I was talking to black folks in Philly, um, sometimes they would ask us to leave. Uh, but before, prior to that, even though, people were generous and would talk to us, but did not want to be recorded by us. Um, which I didn't, I was like, okay, that's weird. Like, you'll talk to me for an hour and a half, but you won't let me record you. But of course, retrospectively, there are, how many cases can you point to of white researchers using research 
to harm the, the black and brown communities that they're doing research in. Um, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, except to say that I think it was very important to recognize that with the best of intentions, like, oh, I'm going to come to Penn and I'm going to do social justice, linguistic research, blah, blah, blah. Best of intentions, I can still be part of the problem. I mean, the question is how one gets over that or past that, not, not just ignoring it, but like, so that happens. Yeah. And then what happens? Because I, I, I mean, I, you can tell me what happened to you, but I think that's a big question in general. Because having that initial experience is one thing. Yep. And then how one adapts to it. Right, and then the answer, like, okay, I'm, not, I'm just going to decide I'm not going to care about social justice because it's too hard to do this work. Right. No, right? Right, yeah. Because um, you could, not you, but one could easily hit that wall and then even try a couple of times and say, well, yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, I, I mean, fieldwork in general is a very um, humbling experience, no matter whether you're getting told to leave the neighborhood or not. Because, um, I mean, you're an idiot. Anytime you're doing fieldwork, you're an idiot. You don't, your whole job is to try to figure out, like, how people see the world around them. And so you're asking questions. And they're like, what? Like, what do you mean, is private school different from public school? That's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Um, I don't, I mean... I think that is part of the, for me, in my experience, part of keeping going anyway is just like accepting that things are going to be humbling um, and that like I'm going to make missteps. And I think about this too in like in my orientation to the field as a whole and to um, other scholars in the field. It's important for me that my work takes social justice seriously, but also that like my engagement with the field, like you're talking about your friend who um, is in classics and how he constantly is having to say, look at the lens through which you're presenting this work as though it's normal and as though like a white experience is the default or whatever. Um, and I think being okay with being wrong and being told that you're misstepping is the most important step that um, like folks in the majority can can take. I feel like there's two possibilities with, I mean, I don't have any evidence for this, but this is what I've come to note among the people that I've come to know as I've gone into sort of the scholarship is that there's a lot of the people who are in majoritized groups uh, are people who have continued in this path because they were never wrong or seen as wrong. And they wanted to continue to have all of their beliefs confirmed. Whereas I think a lot of people in minoritized groups are people who were always told they were wrong and they had to prove that that wasn't the case to other people and themselves. So uh, I can't, you know, binaries aren't good. But I'm just saying, as a rule of thumb, I found that people in minoritized groups have really had to deal with a lot of self-doubt and a lot of external doubt. And so finding out that they're wrong, they could still handle it poorly, but it is often a little bit easier to take and then say, okay, so what am I going to do about it? As mm -hmm. opposed to some people in 
uh, you know, majoritized groups who might even be somewhat interested in doing this open justice thing because it is kind of a feather in someone's cap these days to do such a thing, at least to start mm. that path, you know. That is, that is such a prototype. I mean, you talk about this yeah, a lot of like the white liberal who, that's their identity, but to, to recognize, to like, that's their identity and they can't handle not having that identity. And so being told like, oh, actually that thing you said was kind of messed up is like a challenge to their identity, um, which is the thing that, um, so I'll, I'll also say this, while I was in grad school, I was part of a student group called Students Confronting Racism and White Privilege. Um, these names, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scroop for short. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, it was a really interesting uh, group. It was a coalition of a multiracial coalition. Um, but, and the meetings were of different varieties. But we would talk about white privilege as a, kind of borrowing language from like a 12-step program of like you have to recognize that this is the water you're swimming around in and you've got white privilege it doesn't matter if you think you do or not um you behave in ways that maybe accidentally uphold white supremacy and nobody who's telling you that you messed up cares what your intentions are let's just whatever we can all assume everybody's intentions are good and fine but you are going to mess up. So given that, now decide how you're going to react when you realize that you've messed up. I think a lot of the time, not only does intent not matter, but it's even sort of, it's, it's even the opposite, where yeah. it's, it's what do you do if your intent genuinely is good and it still makes, makes something worse, right? Because if your intent is bad and you are told as much, I, I, you know, like, it just, there's people who do that, but it is not generally, uh, that's, I don't find that that's the work that I'm not interested in fighting. I mean, like, yes, that is a big problem, but that the people can go like that. But like when people genuinely are trying in their head to, to help some other group of people, they're just doing it in a way that they don't realize is a deficit mindset or they don't realize is, uh, you know, paternalistic or whatever particulars of what they're doing is uh that's that really like what what it's like the way i used to get mad at my parents when i was 13 and i was like but i'm trying yeah but i'm trying isn't that enough and they're like isn't that enough <laughs> and they're like, no is the answer <laughs> but i'm trying i mean uh -huh. i mean listen i'm glad i'm glad people are trying that's yeah better that's, than not trying it's, it is better than not trying it's just but, but like there's more to it than that like you do need positive intent it's just that it, that's only the first step um, well and i think like the way that racism is talked about in general in this country or like i guess in majority forums in this country is just one dimensional it's did you intend to be racist or not and that's what matters yeah the, and so you know, to recognize that there are other aspects to it yeah, the racism without racist stuff, right? You know, yeah. it's like, or, uh, I forget the actual quote that um, Zamudi and Rios um, have, it's like individual bad acts or something like that. You know, it's like that thing right there, 
that was a that was a racism. Don't do that. Um, and it's like, well, as long as I don't do that, I am not one of the racisms. Um, and then, as long as I'm, I'm just I'm better than that. So, uh, in a way, because I, I was asking online, and then a friend suggested I look at something, and I looked it up, and I was asking at what point it became such a thing among white people specifically to deny that they were racist, white people were racist things, right? Because it's not new. I mean, this has been going on for a while. It, it changes, but it's not like, uh, you know, 2010s thing for people to not want to be seen as racist, even when they were doing plenty of racist stuff. Just like the word racist became such a thing that people could not accept as part of their identity, even when they were quite obviously from all other perspectives doing what was obviously racist stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like it started like around the 30s, like when like Nazi Germany was rising and people were saying, I'm not like that. It was just to oh, sort of, yeah, I don't know if that was the first time. I'm sure there was a person in 1842 or something. But like, <laughs> you know, like it seemed like it was, we just want to feel like we're better than other people. And that is, of course, part of racism in general, but it's also part of denying that you're racist. I'm not like those people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which I would argue that if people spend a lot of energy on saying how not racist they are, <laughs> they're likelier to actually be perpetuating racism while they're spending all their time trying to prove they're not racist. Oh, um, that's one of the clearest signals that you're about to hear something racist. Yeah. Um, a lot of people used to tell me lots of racist stuff in high school, but I was too young to really realize that when they would start with, like, to realize what you just said, because when they would say, look, this is not a race thing. And I was like, I, like, I would believe them. I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not a race. Okay, all right, let's have this conversation about why you disagree with affirmative action to the one black student class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, but like, yeah, I wanted them to be my friends. What am I going to say, you know? Um, but here's, I mean, the way, the way that society works is they're allowed to believe what they're saying. They're allowed to believe that they're not being racist, right? Sure. Like when they say, not only did you believe them, but they themselves believed that they were not about to say a, a racial thing, right? Yeah. And then they would just be like, yeah, I showed him. But uh, here's where, uh, like going back to linguistics and, and this idea that understanding social structures and the, the structure of, of inequality in society is essential. Um, in my dissertation work, I was focusing on a like highly abstract theoretical question, which is how does phonological change happen? Like what are the abstract representations that individual speakers have in their heads when they produce it? Okay. You would think that this is not related to social inequality at all. But once you start looking at it, you, I, I had, there was, I was part of a fieldwork project that looked at um, speakers across the entire city of Philadelphia. And what we found was that your participation in a particular sound change that's happening was highly structured by the type of high school that you went to. Um, so if you went to a Catholic school, you were more likely to speak the old Philly system. 
um, versus a non-Catholic school. And then there's another dimension, which is if you went to a local school, sorry, Catholic, non-Catholic. If you went to a local neighborhood school, you're more likely to speak the old way. And if you went to like a, a magnet school, um, you're more likely to speak the new way. But these two dimensions um, are not inextricable from other questions of class privilege and racial privilege um, that exist in the city. So for instance, we were trying to fill out our sample so that we would have a wide range of um, genders and ethnicities from all different school types. What we found was we could not find white Philadelphians that went to a local public school. They either went to a local Catholic school or an elite like magnet school. And the reason for this is that, I mean, they, this is broad strokes. Of course, there are some Philadelphians that fit that profile, but broadly speaking, white Philadelphians use Catholic schools as an alternative to the local public schools. Local public schools are seen as, I mean, there's like huge city disinvestment in them. Um, the Catholic schools are seen as better. And if you are, for many schools, if you're part of the diocese, you get free or reduced tuition. So there's, and the Catholic church is, I mean, they're not doing great right now. A bunch of public schools are being shut down, but they're wealthier than other denominations. So you see how this like combination of wealth and social power and, I mean, implicit anti-blackness, to be honest, all fits into the picture of how does this phonological change happen? And in order to understand phonological change, you also have to understand how the school systems in Philadelphia work to perpetuate the inequality that exists in that city. So when you say, when you, you look at that, like, how do you get, how do you come to understand all of that? Like you, okay, yeah, you do research, but that's the thing that you're going to be more specific right Justin like you know you're looking at this question you're getting deeper and you're just you're just finding connections and following along the path so I can also see how if you weren't oriented towards these things you might not keep going that much yeah you know? right right you might just say like huh funny these yeah. systems have these differences or it would be just like um, a limitation and you know it'd be, you know the limitations section it's just like we could not find anything about this I don't know what's happening uh, <laughs> yeah i see i see that sometimes in, in articles and journals i know this is a situation that journal article but um like i see sometimes where it's an article that's uh about a group of students or something and you know it's a kind of thing where especially when i look at like the reason i started focusing on race and language is because like so many things were i'm reading about like language teaching and i'm like your students are clearly racialized, but you don't talk about it. And maybe you should think about that. Why aren't you thinking about that? Um, and then at the end, they'll be like, well, all these students are of different races. I don't know what's going on here. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, so you noticed, but you just didn't do anything about it. Um, <laughs> uh, because like you, like it's impossible not to notice. It's just like, well, it's just, just, just a confounding variable. I don't know what's happening. It's just so weird. I don't know. Um, I wonder how much of that is, you know, like anything race related, the word racism, anything. I have a, um, a high school friend that she's white that used to whisper African-American anytime she was describing somebody, um, which I think gets, at, I, I say this to illustrate um, 
white people are scared to approach race. And what you're describing sounds like that's carrying over into research too. Like, yeah, I recognize that my students are minoritized, but I'm not going to touch that. Yeah. Right. Well, because they don't want to say something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, this is what you already said, you have to be okay with being wrong because I think it's also infantilizing of, of racialized people. I don't just mean the research, but this, when, when people are, especially with this sort of thing, when people are afraid to be a little bit wrong, right? What they're thinking is if they do something that includes race, but they don't have the terminology or the expertise to really say something about it, that someone will read it and say that you're being racist. Now, mm -hmm. first of all, that's possible. You'll be okay. <laughs> but mm -hmm. ignoring that for a second, the second thing is, well, if you don't have the expertise, why don't you get some? But okay, but still, even <laughs> but like the okay, but the, the real point is, um, why is it that they think that racialized people cannot tell the difference between someone who's making an effort but not quite certain of what they're saying and someone who's being genuinely harmful, right? What I think sometimes happens is that people are really simplistic. So they see that like American Dirt controversy, right? Is that what it was called, that, that novel that came out? About, oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they, they see that. They don't bother to read beyond one news article about it. So they read one news article and they're like, I don't I didn't see that. I don't understand. What, what if I wrote something about this group and they got so offended? I can't understand, right? Um, mm -hmm. So they see that and they're like, well, I just want you to talk about it. And it's just like, but you do not, like, you're not actually exploring what the problem um, So. Right, ignoring, ignoring something doesn't make it better. Right. I wonder though, one of the things I'm researching, I have this very long complex plan for several things I'm going to research over the next few years, but you know how these things go. But the way it's starting is with white English language teachers, right? I'm asking them how they came to not just sit in their oblivious whiteness, right? Like how do they get to this point where they realize they had to do things differently? Not just social justice. I'm not saying something wrong with that, but I'm just saying like to specifically be like, huh, I can't just sit here and assume, you know, the stuff that I said was a problem. Like how these are people who are not doing that. So how did you not you? people come to, to get to that point because I've been wondering like was it school was it just their life were they just someone who was up close and personal with someone who was experiencing that type of racial oppression and they started and they were able to empathize like you know that could have happened because I often think that it's not this linear path where it's like well I just read a book and then I knew um because I don't think that that works really well I mean you should be books unless you need to do more than that there's got to be something more uh, emotional to it than that. Um, and I know that in my program, for example, like we came in, we had to have problem of practice. Well, fine, you know, what do you want to study? So I came in with this idea and it's shifted gradually over the years and turned around a little bit, but it's, it's not too different from where I started. But um, pretty much, you know, most of us came in with something equity oriented and 
almost like the classes themselves haven't necessarily been based around that, but the materials in the classes have been based around that, right? Because I think they're two different things that I think are both, they're related, but not the same thing. You know, you have to take these, whatever classes to get your degree. But um, the, some people think, well, what are you going to make us take a class on race, a class on this? Well, maybe that's not a bad thing, but a lot of the time it's as simple as changing out the materials in the class so that the materials in the class are not repeating the same things. You know, you can learn qualitative methods without using some quarry archaic book, archaic book that's, that, you know, just includes all of the same things. Mm -hmm. um, you can teach quantitative, you know, you, you can do this, you can use quantitative methods to challenge the way that quantitative methods have been so discriminatory in the past and even the present. Like there's a lot of like ways you can use, you can teach really baseline skills, but actually challenge what's already there. But I don't think it, it does take legwork at the outset for the program, for the professors, if that is not in their wheelhouse. And then there's the problem of, so who's getting hired? Is it the people for whom it is in their wheelhouse? There's so many things. I mean, as someone who is now officially going in to do this, you know, it's just going to be up to you to now bring these people with you into the field. So, um, yeah. And there's so many layers to that, too. It's like not just what you're being taught, but what you're teaching students. And because it's a, it's a whole network of, teaching, right? It's like, if you are in graduate school and all of your professors are old white dudes, then, you know, the material that, there, there's gotta be extra legwork to make sure that the material that you're being presented or it's not all from old white dudes, which I can see if you're studying classics, <laughs> right? Like, but yeah. um, I mean, and this is not a new idea, but this idea of like identity, identity work in research and how white people get to believe that we're not doing identity work when we're studying the classics, even though the classics are about us, right? Right, and the fact that they're called classics. But right, no, exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, this is just classics, it's, or it's, you know, it's classical music. Um, right. I, I used to have these very unsophisticated arguments in college, right? Because I had all these ideas, but I didn't have the words for them. You know what I'm saying? I had these yeah. the beliefs, and I didn't have the words for them. And I would get really frustrated because I had, basically, I didn't, I didn't have the knowledge base to explain things well, which is how college is. But um, like, I didn't always direct it at the people who I should have directed it at. Like, I would get frustrated with people who I was actually friends with, because I had some friends who were at, you know, I was at Princeton and I had friends who were at a music school, which was in Princeton, and they would tell me what they were studying, and I'm like, so how many black people is it studying? They're like, well, it's just not in Canada. And I'm like, well, why isn't it in Canada? Mm. And they would be like. I don't know, man. And I'm like, well, maybe you should ask questions. And they're just, they're just like, leave me alone. But, but I was just like, what I couldn't express was just like the fact 
that is the canon is the issue. I don't blame you, seven, you know, 18 year old for, for what they're giving you, right? You know, you're not a professor yourself, but like, it was frustrating to me that, you know, just the name, you know, like, uh, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's still seen as like this refined thing, this, you know, this idea that if you play it before a child is born, they'll come out smarter or, or something like that, or, you know, like, <laughs> This, this, and this, using yeah. that 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 word classic as though it's neutral right um is part of the water that we're swimming in i got into a, a facebook argument with um some people here okay here's the setup um the english department at penn had agreed to take down a portrait of william shakespeare and replace it with the students were asking for more diversity in representation so the english department had agreed to this and Two years later, they still hadn't done anything. So in the middle of the night, some students took the portrait down and taped up a picture of Audre Lorde. Wonderful. So this made the student paper and I posted the article on on Facebook and the number of people who comment came on the wall to comment, like, why would you take down William Shakespeare? He deserves to be up there, he's classic. It's so important for students to like know who he is. A, as though there are no other great authors, B, as though like his status as a as like a classic author is ever in question and d as the i don't know i forgot what letter i'm up to but like i think it was d yeah d as though as though that sentence he's such a classic author is not in and of itself already steeped in these structural issues i used to get um when I got to college, I I went to the same school for like 14 years before college, right? So I have a lot of issues with that school, and that's what the chapter I'm writing is mostly about my experience. Did you go to a boarding school? No, it was in Brooklyn, but okay. it was a private school. Um, and so I'm mostly writing about that, but college was this place where I just like all of a sudden, I was like, who are these fucking people? I don't know who these people are, but like, like I had no idea that people were like that. Um, because as wealthy as some of the people in my, my high school were, I would known them since I was three. So like, you know, you kind of, you just like, they could only be but so different for me at that point. It was 14 years. Like I had my many issues there, but I got used to it. My issues are with the institution more than the people. Um, but then when I got to college, I'm hearing all these things that I had just, I'm just, just no idea. And one of the main things in this, I had the whole episode about it was that all these people were into classic rock, right? Classic rock. Now, it's just the concept of classic rock, which is not, it's not the same as classical music, but there's that word there again, right? What does classic mean, right? Um, and first of all, none of these fucking kids were older than like 1985. So I don't know why these people insisted that they knew everything about 60s and 70s. Just, just, just. Just look, 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 your parents gave you this money. Just stop, just stop it. Just stop pretending. Like, I understand if you say, this is a song my parents like, they played it a lot and so forth, so therefore I like it. That's fine. Like, I like soul music because my parents played it. Fine. But don't come in here talking about the only good music is classic rock. And then, so what I did was I tried to get into it, but because I was so hopelessly behind, they would make fun of me because I didn't know anything about like Led Zeppelin, 
And I'm just like, look, look, people, I'm trying to learn so I can, in retrospect, speak your language. But (laughs) if you're going to be assholes about it, I don't really get it. And then the funny thing is I came to like some of it and I came to hate other parts of it. Because like any genre, there's good stuff and bad stuff. Um, But this idea that it is just this unimpeachable thing, you know, it cannot be improved upon, is just frankly ridiculous to me. That's Um, a really good example of how folks from minoritized backgrounds know the background and like you know this the music that your parents listen to but then you also have to become an expert in whatever the majoritized like music culture is as well yeah they always and they used to tell me about sorry sorry hold on Mm -hmm. They, and the, the, the thing about it is that they always used to tell me all the things that they knew about my music as if, like, I didn't know them. But, you know, that's a whole... I already have an episode about that stuff, so... Um, yeah, you know, and when you think... So, looking forward, because the entire point of it is to look at the future, but whatever. Um, <laughs> like, I, I'm a little concerned... I don't just mean about the world, but I mean, like, I'm a little concerned, like... So, I'm writing this this chapter... And I'm excited about it, but um, I don't mean the one that I'm planning to now write a proposal. I mean the one that I'm already excited about proposal for. Everything goes well. The thing is getting released in November of 2021. Right? It's a year and a half from now. <laughs> um, and that's the schedule they gave me, right? So, you know, I'm trying to write forward thinking research or well, I mean this is a narrative but you know what I'm saying um forward-thinking scholarship hell could you be but so forward-thinking and it takes a year and a half from when you start doing something to when I don't mean the project is a year and a half because sometimes it is a year and a half or five years or whatever but yeah. like, you know like there's so much is going to change after all of this stuff we don't even know the full extent of it. And research is going to be very necessary to understand the full extent of what's changed. And as you know, like linguistic analysis is going to be, whichever angle you want to take it from, is going to be really interesting and important and valuable to do once we figure out what's going to happen. But there's going to be, first of all, there's going to be so much noise you know, you know, that's because we, it's just going to take so much time for us to sort things out. But also, like, how on earth are we going to actually make the systemic changes we need in the, or as Audre Lorde would say, using the master's tools, right? Yeah. You know, how, how like, we're going to go and we're like, well, this is great. Let me write a journal article about it. And then maybe six people will read it in two years. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, well, and people will take it up as a um, disembodied point to be argued, right? Yeah, just just um, or his own set of things, right? Or we eventually get back to having normal conferences, and you know, there's nine thousand different sessions, and I think I'll go to that one, and so all of, you know, you practice for six months and there's nine people. And like, you know, and it's just like how, as I've said on other episodes, 
I, I did well when I presented the obvious to shield thing in November, and I think there were 30 people there, right? That's like a lot of people for a small conference. Um, but then when I recorded the thing and put it on the podcast, it was like 300 people. That's 10 yeah. times as many people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. you know, so like what, what, but on the other hand, if you just, you know. I mean, also, we think about like, the ivory tower or whatever, like, oh, we're doing research to like understand the way that the world works. And yet what happens to that research, it gets published, takes whatever, three years to get published. It goes behind a paywall. People don't have access to it. And even if they do have access to it, usually it's in, oftentimes it's written with terminology that is difficult to understand if you haven't gone through whatever, years of graduate school in a particular topic. But this is where, I mean, I think your podcast is an incredibly important piece of science outreach of like, listen, 300 people are now thinking about the altruistic shield. Right? Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah, this happens a lot. People say good things about my podcast on my podcast and I leave it in there. Go do the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that's the idea because I think, you know, that and my vocal fries and stuff like that is because I don't, yeah. I, I, I can read with so many articles, um, you know, and I and I read more articles than, than a lot of people that I know, not because I'm bragging about it, because I read really fast. Um, and even if I'm, if it's super jargony, I just, then I just don't remember everything. But, <laughs> but I, I still read this as fast. I'm just like, well, didn't remember what that said, but <laughs> I got my homework done. Um, yeah. And... Honestly, when I read a journal article, what I tend to do, unless I'm literally about to use it in my writing, is I read through it quickly and I highlight things and then I just go back and I literally take, depending on what kind of document is, whether it's a PDF or like a Word document or whatever, I like copy the quotes onto their own page. And then when I want to discuss it in class, I have the quotes and then I can go find others if I need to. But if I have a bunch of quotes, I have enough to say. Um, and there's no way to, if I, I used to, at the beginning, like, these people are just, because I went to a couple of, like, actual student gatherings before I started, and I was, like, intimidated, I was like, oh, man, they're going to be quoting things, just not right, I don't know what I'm going to do, man, I need to, like, memorize an article, man, um, <laughs> <laughs> um there's some people like that, there's some people um but mostly they're not but like yeah because like you know the research you did you know like philadelphia like i'm sure that those participants were absolutely allowed or encouraged to read it but i don't know like if you if any of them like would be interested in reading the article as such i mean i don't know what happened you know but like not that it's a bad article i found it really interesting but i'm like a language person so yeah yeah um so sometimes one has to think like doing the traditional scholarship um the audience is necessarily inside of the bubble so what can you do with that however like if you mold yourself too much to fit a certain aesthetic, then you may lose your voice. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance that? Uh, I think it's really difficult, and I'm not sure how many people pull it off. 
who aren't already majoritized. Mm -hmm. I think there are people who are majoritized who are doing really strong work and it's they're able to walk theoretically metaphorically I should say walk into the room and be like I'm doing it my way you're going to listen to me and also I have some points to make about social justice and that's good they need to do that but what about other people who have the same ideas and don't look that way mm-hmm. and they want to make the same point they can't just walk into the room and not sand down their edges um, and be seen the same way yeah and I think that's a really big part of the problem and I don't really know what to do about it which is why I do this podcast <laughs> that's kind of my point yeah I'm thinking of like all of these concentric circles of um, like sanding down your edges and like who gets default respect and default you know you walk like who has to defend their right to be in the room right yeah. and sometimes I get really uncomfortable because um, as I thought about my identity over the years and, and did more research and more reading um, and I realized part of what my main conflict was when I was younger was that in some ways with the like classic rock thing or whatever I was trying to approach a facsimile of whiteness a certain type of whiteness of course um, but you never fully can, so you get very uncomfortable. And it was not healthy. But then I realized later, both that that was the case, and also that I was also trying to approximate a certain type of blackness around my family and other friends. Um, so I also felt like I was in this liminal state. I'm not half white or anything. It's just like I was still in between these two worlds. and. Then when I, um, now, when things are going well for me at school, and they are, I wonder if it's because, again, like, I'm that black kid who's really good at being white, (laughs) and I don't, but I'm not trying to anymore, like, in a way, like, I'm, I'm being as authentic as I can be, but the authentic version of me is still closer to the white uh, norm than other black people not uh, not all but many other black people and I can't do anything about that so I'm hoping that my relative level of ability to be accepted in the room can be you know uh, brought alongside the fact that I am trying desperately not to lose my voice when I write about these things. Because as, I, as I've said, every time I write an article, not that I've written that many, but I try, especially when some nonsense happens, like the altruistic shield, that article's really like 10 pages, but it's like three pages on the thing, um, because they wanted to put it in the alternative perspective section. And <laughs> I was like, well, I want a publication, so whatever. But, um, because one someone pointed out to me like you know it's, it was kind of rushed i'm like i know i know it's rushed i know it's not supposed to be that short right because um, it's a third of the size <laughs> the length that yeah right. um but like the article itself says are you reading alternative perspectives they didn't like catch that i was making fun of them for doing what they did 
So, so I just, I keep doing things like that. When I write. <laughs> like, like, it's like, it's in, it's That's in hilarious. the article, um, but they didn't notice them. So whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I try to subtweet everything when or I have these moments because I, uh, I think it's really important. I don't know what to do about the fact, and I know it's because of, as you said, the high schools that people go to, right? I went to that school for 14 years. There was no way it wasn't going to come out sounding like people at my school. Um, mm-hmm. And if I tried not to, it wouldn't work. Um, and if I tried to do it too much, it wouldn't work. So I have to use, and, and the same I think is for you to some extent, use the relative level of access that I have to do something worthwhile. And I think the worst thing, yeah. not, not the worst thing, maybe the second worst thing, the worst thing is people in power saying about, but I mean, among, <laughs> aside from that, it's the people who are in our position, maybe they have one or two types of marginalization, but not several, you know, getting in there and pulling the ladder up behind them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right. that really, like, you know, people who who get theirs, and that's it. You know, it it's um, right. Who like, don't lift as they yeah. lift as they climb. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to school with people who they we talked about all this interesting stuff, and I know I say this like it was this brave decision. It wasn't brave at the time. It was weird panic, but. In retrospect, but when I was a senior, I, everybody was interviewing for jobs because that's the kind of thing that happened before the recession. Um, <laughs> the, the, the recession before this one, but um, no, our entire lives is a recession. Yeah, um, but so it's in 2000, 2006, right? Um, and there are everyone's interviewing for jobs, and they're all interviewing for like consulting firms, and I was waiting for it turn to interview and I just I left I ran home home to my door home um I didn't want to do it and I was like I don't feel comfortable going into that space I'm not yeah did that and then I didn't have a job so like it wasn't <laughs> this wasn't like I didn't really think through this decision you know um and I for the decade after that when I mostly had no money I thought about that decision like a lot like it's just like you know justin um <laughs> and, but now again i made the right decision and i see a lot of people who i went to class with people who again were marginalized to not to be a freshman olympics about it but just similar levels that i was and they took the money and uh you know for who they were and their identities and for the way they feel that probably was not necessarily the worst decision, but I wish that all of them who were clearly very intelligent could be working towards something. Because if we had, we don't need, like, there aren't that many people in power. You just need everyone who could do something about it to do a little bit towards making things a little bit different. That's what I think. Yeah. I think it's good also to remember that like wherever you are, whatever position of um, 
relative comfort or power you have, that that's like a gift and a responsibility, right? So like, okay, so I just got, um, I just got a new job. I'm going to be a professor. Yay. Like everybody, not everybody, not everybody wants this. And if people don't want that, that's great. But, you know, I, I wanted to stay in academia. So this feels like a big um, jackpot. I've made it. But it's easy for people in every step of the way. Oh, I made it into graduate school. Oh, now I'm just a lonely grad, lowly grad student. Like I don't want to rock the boat because I need to get a job. Oh, now I have a job, but I don't have tenure yet. So I don't want to rock the boat every step of the way, even faculty members that have tenure. Oh, I don't want the dean to be mad at me, whatever. So I think it's really uh, empowering to remind all of your listeners, me, whoever's whatever, that at every step of the way, I actually hold a great deal of power to do good, to upset problematic systems that already exist, to, to actively lift as I climb. And I think it's important to realize that there's not like a stage at which you do that. It's like a constant thing, right? Everybody has somebody that they can be looking out for and everybody has moments where I can notice inequalities and speak up about it, right? I, I think that that's a good general point around which to coalesce. Um, and I don't know, you know, none of us know what's going to happen in the future. Um, I think that that's both a cliche statement and an exceptionally true statement in the spring of 2020. Yeah. Um, like, those are things that we might have all said three months ago. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be making, people are making a lot of predictions. We should maybe not do that. Um, <laughs> no, nobody knows what's going to happen. Like, we already, like, we, we never knew. It is clear that we knew even less than we thought that we knew. Um, so... I'm hopeful that the experience of, like right now, the world is not the way that we all thought the world had to be, right? Insulin is being capped at $35 a dose. Like the world can be different. And three weeks ago, it wasn't all that different. Right. Now, three weeks later, it is. So that gives me some hope. I am curious as to how quickly they're going to try to force things back. I don't mean setting us out of our houses. I mean, force all of those rules back into the box. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? All the, they're clearly going to try. Capitalism is a hell of a drug. Yeah. yeah. They're clearly going to try, but uh, there are so many people being affected, not just people being sick, but people losing their jobs and all that that um, there is, I hope and think, too much uh, opposition to just letting things return. And like, I, I mean, if, you know, if we're in our houses for like nine years or something, and people are just like, please let me back, I don't care. Oh my me, God. But like, there's gonna, be a, there's gonna be a point at which people are just gonna be like, give up, give up. But um, I don't think we'll get to that point. And hopefully the only 
hopefully we are organized enough to make sure that a lot of the things that they say can't happen stay how they have been able to be changed to. That was good. That was good grammar. All right. Yeah, no, I got you. I'm there with you.